Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly roundtable, the crisis at the border and the continuum of the devaluation of the lives of some of us. Meanwhile, in Capitol Hill, Democrats are in fighting on Biden's Build Back Better plan and infrastructure. Can President Biden calm the waters? And there's a row over the debt ceiling with a looming government shutdown. And again, a debate over taxes, who pays, who does not, and inflation fears as a political football. Meanwhile, subpoenas have dropped um, by the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. And on the international front, the UN General Assembly has met this week. Uh, what are the key elements that came out of it? On the other hand, south of the border, the community of Latin American and Caribbean states met in Mexico. Uh, some major happenings there. What is the significance for possible realignment in the Americas? Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandiri. The head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has overruled an advisory panel. Rochelle Walensky says the CDC will recommend COVID-19 booster shots for healthcare workers, teachers, and other frontline workers who are at higher risk of coming into contact with infected people. Walensky's announcement came hours after an advisory panel said boosters should be offered to people 65 and older, nursing home residents, and those aged 50 to 64 who have risky underlying health problems. The panel voted against recommending that people get a booster if they're between 18 to 64 years old and are health care workers or have another job but puts them at an increased risk of being exposed to the virus. The panel vote was 9 to 6 against including frontline workers. But Walensky disagreed and put that recommendation back in, noting such a move aligns with a Food and Drug Administration booster authorization decision earlier this week. Besides frontline workers, those recommendations apply to people living in institutional settings such as prisons or homeless shelters. At the United Nations, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa and other African leaders urged U.N. member states to support a proposal to temporarily waive certain intellectual property rights to allow more countries to produce COVID-19 vaccines. It is an indictment on humanity that more than 82% of the world's vaccine doses have been acquired by wealthy countries while less than 1% has gone to low-income countries. Unless we address this as a matter of urgency, the pandemic will last much longer and new mutations of the virus 
will emerge. The World Health Organization says COVID-19 vaccine shipments to Africa must rise by over seven times to 150 million a month if the continent is to reach the goal of fully vaccinating 70 percent of its population by September of next year. Young climate activists from around the world are staging actions again today to call on governments to cut carbon emissions and tackle the climate crisis. Fridays for Future has registered more than 1,300 climate strikes for today. The majority are planned in Europe. Marches are also happening in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the United States. Climate activist Greta Thunberg addressed a large rally in Germany, where the climate strike was taking place just two days before national elections. The climate crisis has never once been treated like an emergency. It is clearer than ever that no political party is doing close to enough. But it's even worse than that. Not even their proposed commitments are close to being aligned with what would be needed to fulfill the Paris Agreement. Germany is the European Union's biggest greenhouse gas emitter. The climate crisis has risen to the top of concerns in Germany following flash flooding that swept away homes and buildings and killed more than 200 people in the western part of the country. The intense rainfall was supercharged by global warming. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol has subpoenaed four advisors and associates to former President Trump. They were all in contact with him as hundreds of his followers violently broke into the Capitol and tried to block congressional action certifying Joe Biden's presidential win. The subpoenas are for former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Communications Dan Scavino, former Defense Department official Kasia Patel, and former Trump advisor Steve Bannon. The four are among Trump's most loyal aides. Committee Chair Benny Thompson says in letters to each of the witnesses that investigators believe they have relevant information about the lead-up to the insurrection. Supporters of former President Trump who were hired by Arizona Senate Republicans to review the 2020 vote count are preparing to deliver their findings. A draft of the report obtained by media outlet shows that the cyber ninjas will confirm that President Biden won and by a wider margin than Maricopa County official election results. The report slated for release today is the climax of the quest by Arizona Republicans to try to find evidence supporting Trump's false claim that he lost because of fraud. The unprecedented partisan review was led and funded largely by people who continue to insist that Trump was the true winner, despite dozens of lawsuits and extraordinary scrutiny that found no problems that could change the outcome. Police say a gunman attacked a Kroger grocery store in an upscale suburb of Memphis, Tennessee, and killed one person and wounded 12 others before being found dead. Earlier this year, Tennessee became the latest state to allow most adults 21 and older to carry handguns without first clearing a state-level background check and training. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Uh, and it is our weekly roundtable. 
And I'd like to welcome our panelists. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program, who works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization based in Mexico City. She's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. She is a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. And I'd like to welcome Jackie Goldberg, governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. She had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council, and before being elected to council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Uh, he is also uh, the prize winner for his book, uh, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the long 16th century. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. All righty, we're gonna start out um, with the crisis at the border and the devaluation of the lives of some of us there. Uh, Dr. Horn, I'm sure you know, and all of us, that there is a historic threat for that kind of devaluation. And by now, many have likely seen the images of Haitian refugees along the U.S.-Mexican border being chased down, whipped, detained, and deported. Uh, some of those chasing down Haitian refugees were on horseback, drawing comparisons to the era of slavery in the United States. And there's been blowback for the administration uh, of U.S. President uh, Joe Biden. Uh, from immigrants' rights uh, campaigners and others within the Democratic Party itself. On Thursday, September 23rd, Daniel Foote, the U.S. Special Envoy for Haiti, handed in his resignation, saying he will, quote, not be associated with the United States' inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees from the U.S.-Mexican border. He added that U.S. policy approach to Haiti remains deeply uh, flawed. And uh, the update is the Biden administration has halted border aid patrol agents' use of horses uh, at that um, crossing in Del Rio, Texas, amid public outcry over the video and photos. The agents have been put on administrative leave pending an investigation. As of the latest figures available, a total of 1,424 deportees from Haitian deportees from the United States have arrived on 12 flights to Haiti, this according to CNN. Now, more than 170 of them are children, of which 41 hold foreign citizenship, uh, foreign passports uh, from countries like Chile, Brazil, and uh, Venezuela. Uh, some are being released. However, um, the uh, Haitian 
immigration authorities are saying that they're expecting 14,000 Haitians to be expelled from the United States in the coming three weeks. This according to the New York Times. On Sunday alone, um, officials were preparing for three flights to arrive in uh, Port-au-Prince. And after that, they expect six flights a day for three weeks split between Port-au-Prince and the coastal city of Cap Haitien. And um, the immigration officer, Haitian immigration officer, uh, continued to say that, quote, the Haitian state is not really able to receive these deportees. Let's go to a clip now uh, from The Guardian on the situation. A scathing letter of rebuke to the U.S. government and a high-level resignation. The American special envoy to Haiti, Daniel Foote, leaving his post in protest telling the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, Wednesday he will, quote, not be associated with the United States' inhuman, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees from the U.S.-Mexico border. It comes as chaos intensifies at the Port-au-Prince airport. Migrants arriving in droves from encampments at the U.S. border with Mexico, they were deported en masse back to Haiti by the American government. Many longed for a better life in the U.S., desperate to escape devastating poverty, political unrest, and escalating gang violence in the Haitian capital. The former U.S. envoy describing the situation as so dangerous that American officials in Haiti are confined to compounds. But these Haitian citizens have nowhere to hide, forced to return to the homeland they were trying so hard to escape. Those words by the U.S. Special Envoy about the grinding poverty, the endemic violence and the lack of basic resources here in Haiti also reflected in the assessment made by the Department of Homeland Security in the spring when it decided to accord special protected person status to those Haitians already in the United States. And yet, the Haitians being returned at the moment here in their hundreds every day haven't even been given the chance of applying for asylum. Many return after a treacherous, sometimes deadly journey, winding through South and Central America, some crossing nearly a dozen countries en route to the U.S. Some tell us that once at the border, U.S. officials treated them more like inmates than exhausted refugees. When we got to the U.S., they closed all the access points, and we could not go to buy food. When we arrived in the U.S., the authorities put us on a bus and sent us to jail and said we would be released in two days. They put chains on our feet, around our stomachs, on our hands. They put us in cars and took us to the airport. Some deportees tell us they didn't know where they were being taken when U.S. authorities ushered them onto a plane. It wasn't until landing back in Haiti that they discovered it was a return to where they'd started a seemingly tragic end to a long and desperate journey. It appears was all for naught. All righty, there we go. And Laura Carlson, uh, we are going to start with you. I mean, we have discussed crisis at the U.S. border before. Uh, these images that many of us saw of, of border agents on horseback basically whipping um, Haitians and also women and children very, very close uh, to the horseback. So, the horses. So what this has exposed, it seems, is uh, a few things. One, 
um, the, the continuing humanitarian crisis at, at the border and people are saying Haitians in particular are being singled out for this kind of treatment given the long history of uh, racist treatment of people of African descent in the United States. But it also has brought out the kind of anti-black racism that Haitians are saying that they received in their journey through from Latin America through uh, Central America to the U.S. And this is something that I know a lot of folks uh, don't necessarily want to uh, want to talk about. Um, but just overall, not only for Haitian refugees, Haiti being the most impoverished uh, nation in the Americas, Honduras coming in second, but uh, Haitian refugees as well as refugees coming from uh, Central America in particular are fleeing uh, poverty and um, violence, etc. A lot of that, um, the aftermath or connected to U.S. foreign policy. But Laura Carlson, your take on uh, what you have seen and what you think is going on. Ambassador Foote's statement is a brave voice of reason amid an extremely cruel scenario of racist persecution uh, that is, has been going on at the border among other groups of people, but with this migration of Haitians that we're seeing now, there are specific elements to it, and one of them is very clearly racism. The image of uh, armed horsemen with whips, it takes us back to the, the history of slavery and racism in the United States, but also in most of the continent. We also saw Haitians facing such a desperate situation that when they did realize that they'd been landed back in Haiti, there was a rush to actually forcibly get back onto some of those deportation planes. It's really important to see this problem in a global framework. We're seeing a lot of misinformation and false information from the press, like this statement from the New York Times that says, the rise in Haitian migration began in the months after Biden took office and began reversing former Donald Trump's strictest migration policies, which was interpreted by many as a sign that the United States would be more welcoming to migrants. This places the blame on humanitarian migration policies, which have been very limited, but at least a step above where Donald Trump was under the Biden administration, and takes the focus away from the fact that these people are facing desperate situations within their own country that have been largely caused by the U.S. government. They are refugees. And this migration, this crisis in Haiti did not start even with the July 7th assassination of the president, Joanna Mosse, or with the August 14th earthquake, or much less with the change in immigration policies on the U.S. border. This crisis has been going on for many, many years. And that's why the majority, and we see this when we talk to Haitians who are coming up through Mexico, the majority are coming from Panama, they're coming from Brazil. These are people who migrated to South America because of the dire situations they were facing at home. And then with the pandemic economic crisis in those countries where they could no longer find work, began to migrate northward just looking for survival. That's, again, why so many of these children actually have parents who are Panamanian or who are Brazilian and have other kinds of passports. 
The UNICEF estimates or, or has stated that more than two of every three Haitian migrants, or again, we should say refugees, that have been returned to Haiti are women, children, and adolescents. So the humanitarian crisis that we're facing here is really serious. And when we talk about the global view, we have to take into account what's happening in Mexico. There's an estimated 40,000 people stuck in Tapachula on the Mexico southern border. Mexico has wow. created uh, a blockade, basically, for these people. We see some who are able to come up north. Yesterday I got a call that there were families here in Mexico City with absolutely nothing in desperate need of some sort of support. And they're going through legal channels to get refugee status, asylum status in, the, in Mexico, and they're not even allowed to appeal for it when they get to the U.S. border. So the violation of rights is coming from all over, and the solution has to do with getting all these countries together, Haiti, the South American countries, Mexico, and the United States, and the migrants themselves, to talk about a humane solution to this problem. What we're seeing is precisely the opposite. Thank you for that, Laura, Laura Carlson. Really quite a shocking um, picture that you've painted there. And Becky Goldberg, your thoughts? Well, I think we should have a congressional investigation of the Border Patrol. You know, their history has been disastrous all along, and this business with the horses and then this new guy, Ortiz, who's been with them for 29 years, and he gets appointed to take over the Border Patrol leadership. Well, you know, I, I, you, it needed change for a lot of years. Putting a guy who's been with them for 29 years certainly won't do it. About 96% of the cases that are brought against them are not even investigated, and it's time. It's time to change the Border Patrol's rule because they have been amongst the most brutal of all of the uh, enforcement agencies <clears throat> in the United States, and they are really largely held unaccountable. They're supposed to wear body cameras. They didn't wear them. Uh, they said they wouldn't during uh, Del Rio. Why not? Why not? Why, you're supposed to wear them, right? Okay. They're, uh, I mean, it's just long past. These, when we see them, and, and, and oh, I, Ortiz says, oh, he was just trying to control their horses. Baloney. You don't have a range that long when you ride a horse unless you intend to use it as a whip. And anybody who's ever gone riding knows that the reins are not as long as the reins we saw on television. So I think, you know, from my two cents, I think that uh, I agree with everything that uh, Laura said. But I also think there are, there's some criminal actions going on at the border, and nobody's being held accountable. And I think it is time for all of us to say to Congress, you need to have an independent evaluation of what the Border Patrol's history is. It's been a history of brutality, and it is time to stop that. I, you know, the other issues are, of course, critical and important, at, but we're going to begin to see, I think Laura's idea of bringing everyone together and look for solutions, it's going to be necessary, because not only is the pandemic going to drive it, but climate change drives it, as well as the whole notion that we still have, you know, have and have not nations forever and ever. If we do not begin to take into account that there's going to be massive changes in locations of where people live in order just to survive, uh, there will be no planning that will take place that, that will address the measure, the large measure, the increasing measure of this problem. But I, I'm for one is saying that my first step would be to let's investigate 
uh, the Border Patrol's history of brutality. Just the treatment of people of, of African descent. I mean, there is what has happened at the border. Also, the nation has been obsessed with the missing uh, and now murdered um, young woman, uh, Gabby Petito. Um, communities of color, indigenous communities, black communities are saying, well, what about our missing people? The Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders, of which I am part of, issued a press release saying they, in South Los Angeles alone, we know that there are still 32 women, black women, who are missing. And who knows about that? And about 200 uh, victims of serial killers or, or dead and, or, or missing. And, um, you know, there is that continuum of the devaluation of the lives of some of us. And I wanted you to comment on that. And also the U.S., they seem to have, when it comes to Haiti, like a button is pushed. It has all, what is it about Haiti that the U.S. has unleashed since the Haitian Revolution up until now, decades of repression, supporting the coup against the first democratically president, supporting dictators, corrupt governments, and more? Dr. Gerald Horn. What is it about Haiti? Uh, well, Haiti, with its revolution, 1791 to 1804, disrupted the profitability of slavery, and that led to a general crisis of the entire slave system that could only be resolved with this collapse, which happened in North America in 1865. Unlike in the British Caribbean, where the slave owners uh, were uh, compensated, in fact, they were only recently paid off within the last decade, in the United States, the slave owner's property was taken without compensation, and many families driven from their point of view into poverty, and therefore they're still angry and furious about that. I think it's quite simple. And then there are the contemporary issues, which is that there's a fundamental contradiction between various U.S. policies. For example, over a decade ago, WikiLeaks reported that Haynes and Levi, two major corporations in the United States that manufacture in Haiti a lobby furiously and intensely when Haiti was trying to raise the minimum wage to 61 cents an hour. They were successful. When you have a minimum wage in the United States now climbing towards $15 an hour, it's understandable why people would prefer to do the kind of labor that they could do in Haiti to do that labor in, in the United States uh, as well. And then the Haitians had reason to believe Joe Biden, when he said that he was heavily dependent upon the black constituency in the United States for success. And so they thought that perhaps that would extend to other black people who arrived in Del Rio, Texas. I think it's also fair to say that the labor movement in the United States has not been very helpful. The AFL-CIO, instead of helping Haitian workers raise their minimum wage so that they will feel comfortable staying at home, instead lobbies around the world on behalf of imperialist foreign policies that oftentimes lead to right-wing governments that further repress uh, the minimum wage. And it's not just unique uh, to Haiti, I'm afraid to say. Uh, for example, we all know that the U.S. invasion of Libya in 2011 uh, helped to create a gateway for migrants from deeper into Africa crossing the Mediterranean into southern Europe, particularly into Italy, uh, where their plight was played upon by demagogic politicians leading to right-wing populism or an acceleration thereof. And indeed, in the latest uh, book, 
Apparel by Woodward and Kostov, which is now climbing the bestseller charts, they point out that the Republicans do not want to see the question of immigration resolved because from their point of view, it helps to rile up their base and drive them to the polls. And you may see another expression of that as soon as November 2022. And when you have regimes like Cuba that seek to redistribute the wealth and provide for an equitable standard of living, including education and health care, you see that the United States then tries to entice Cubans to leave the island, which then helps to further uh, rile up the Republican Party base. So I think that going forward, what we need in the first instance is for the black organizations like the NAACP to lean on the AFL-CIO leadership with regards to jettisoning this uh, insane foreign policy they have, instead pushing for higher minimum wages. And in fact, that would also include some of our professional athletes since a significant number of the baseballs produced for the national pastime in the United States, speaking of baseball, are manufactured in Haiti. It's virtual wages that are difficult to live on. Right, and, and just a quick comment on this devaluation of lives. I mean, um, the Gwen Eiffel, the late Gwen Eiffel, coined the term missing white women syndrome. And I'll have to say uh, personally uh, on this, you know, I get calls all the time, Dr. Horn, from television stations, et cetera, that want to do something on, you know, crying, you know, solving crimes in the serial stores. Uh, and uh, focusing on the serial murderers and not really the victims and the communities. But I'll have to say, in all of this national news that's now coming out about the murder of this young uh, white woman and, and the, the beginning debate about what's happening in community of colors, color, none of them seem to be interested in the 32 missing black women in South Los Angeles. Dr. Horn. Well, part of it, as we well know, has to do with settler colonialism and how it was basically founded on the principle of devaluing the lives of people of African descent, not to mention the indigenous population. And we have yet to have an honest reckoning with regard to how this country was founded, even by some of our friends on the left, who oftentimes buy into the fairy tales about this grand democratic experiment that excluded a significant percentage of the population. And until we come to that kind of reconciliation, I'm afraid to say that we'll continue to see these outrages. All righty. Thank you, Dr. Horn. All of our panelists will stay with us. We're going to take a station break. And coming up, um, just saw a headline that Democrats are beginning to panic. That's the word panic in terms of what's going on in Washington, D.C., and whether um, President Biden's care economy agenda will be able to move forward. Uh, and also the U.N. General Assembly and an important uh, conference that happened south of the border, somewhat, not entirely, but a counter to what was going on at the United Nations. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
And that is Freedom Highway by Rhiannon Giddens. And indeed, a lot of these refugees really um, feel coming to the United States, perhaps that it is Freedom Highway only to be shot when they get to the U.S. border. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and it is our weekly roundtable. So if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook and check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at SoTrueRadio, and we're worldwide and nationwide on SoundCloud, and today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Columbia, Maryland, and internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Spain, of which there are quite a few. It is our weekly roundtable. This is Margaret Prescott, your host. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Berg, and Dr. Gerald Horn. And now I mentioned uh, before the break that I just saw a headline that Democrats are beginning to panic in terms of what is going on with their agenda in Washington, uh, D.C. Democrats in Congress have been working hard to finalize the details of a spending bill that some say will help grow the economy, lift people out of poverty, and address the crisis of climate change. Lawmakers in the House Ways and Means Committee have advanced legislation incorporating the tax elements of President Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan. One of the central questions impacting the future of the bill now is not really is what's in the bill, which we should be paying attention to and how it would benefit people, but how to pay uh, for all of this with Republicans putting up a lot of roadblocks and, of course, um, senators uh, like Senator uh, Manchin. Uh, President Biden put forward a tax reform proposal that not only pays for this, but also corrects the excesses of tax cuts made under Donald Trump that benefited the rich at the expense of the poor. As it relates to tax enforcement, President Biden wants to mobilize the IRS to ensure that tax laws are being fairly enforced and that the rich pay their share. Now, uh, some of what's at stake is the very popular uh, child tax credit uh, program that was implemented where um, families basically uh, can get uh, uh, an amount of as much as $300 a month uh, for children over six years old, six to 17, uh, uh, 256 to 17 and 300 for those children who are under six. And now you have Republicans who want to cut it, get rid of it entirely, but also make it a mandated work program um, for those people whose incomes are too low uh, to pay taxes, uh, basically be making it into an unpaid caregiver penalty or a mom penalty, or in some cases, a grandma penalty. But there's a lot at stake here because progressives are also saying they're not going to vote for the infrastructure bill that was passed in the Senate unless this particular um, bill, the $3.5 trillion deal uh, backed by Bernie Sanders, progressives, and so many, also makes its way 
uh, through Congress. And President Biden, meanwhile, had been holding a series of meetings trying to keep the peace and bring everyone on, on board. But uh, also, another thing that Republicans are doing to block all of this is refusing to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, and of course, if that's not raised, there won't be money for a whole slew of things, including Biden's Build Back Better plan. And they're trying to set up the Democrats by saying, if you want uh, to raise the debt debt ceiling, you have to do it through reconciliation process with all Democrats, because Republicans are not going to go there. Meanwhile, when Trump was president, the Democrats went along and with and raised the debt ceiling. And you might recall a huge um, uh, tax, uh, really, lift uh, for the, the most wealthy. Now, what's behind all of this? It really is a question of the direction that the United States is going to go. So there's an interesting clip here from the Wall Street Journal, from their editorial board, uh, contrasting uh, Reaganomics with what President Biden is proposing. Let's go to that clip now. We begin in 1981 with a clip from Ronald Reagan's first presidential address on the economy. We can lecture our children about extravagance until we run out of voice and breath. Or we can cure their extravagance by simply reducing their allowance. With Mr. Reagan's advice in mind, listen now to Joe Biden detailing his megatrillion Build Back Better plan last week. My plan lowers the cost of daycare and child care and elder care for families. It lowers health care premiums for millions of families. And it strengthens Medicare by adding dental, vision, and hearing coverage. Spending on this scale is troubling enough, but it was Mr. Biden's clear rejection of the U.S. economic system that clarified where the once moderate Joe Biden stands today. Over the past 40 years, the wealthy have gotten wealthier, and too many corporations have lost their sense of responsibility to their workers, their communities, and the country. I, Ronald Reagan, do so. 40 years returns us to 1981 and a man who disagrees with Mr. Biden. We can create the incentives which take advantage of the genius of our economic system. A system, as Walter Lippmann observed more than 40 years ago, which for the first time in history gave men, quote, a way of producing wealth in which the good fortune of others multiplied their own, unquote. During his 2020 campaign, Mr. Biden posed a question. Ask yourself, do I look like a radical socialist? And during this speech, he said, I'm not out to punish anyone. I'm a capitalist. Joe Biden is not a capitalist. He is a socialist. Recall his budget statement at the end of April. My fellow Americans, trickle down. Trickle down economics has never worked. God bless you and thank you. Trickle-down economics has been 40-year code for the Reagan economic policies, which cut marginal rates on income and capital gains. But the left omits the explicit purpose of Reaganomics to encourage people to work, save, and invest. What you need is equilibrium between the ability of people to keep and save and be encouraged to work and invest and still have enough revenue uh, for the government to do the vital things that need to be done. Work, save, and invest is a three-word definition of capitalism, which is demonstrably alien to Mr. Biden's worldview today. Instead, the president adopts Senator Sanders' socialist language, railing against millionaires, billionaires, and corporations, 
claiming that his Build Back Better plan will create new industries and new jobs. We're going to continue with an economy where the overwhelming share of the benefits go to big corporations and the very wealthy, or are we going to take this moment right now to set this country on a new path? All righty, there you heard that that debate, capitalism versus socialism is the way the Wall Street Journal is putting it. Now, here's another thing, though. Um, I just have a very short clip from an indigenous woman, Irene Montantes, on the child tax credit, because a lot of uh, what underscores this when they talk about work, save and invest, who is a worker? Are unpaid caregivers workers? Are moms workers? Let us hear from this mom on the benefits of the child tax credit. My name is Irene Montantes. A child tax credit has been important to me because as a son who lives in California with high rent fees, um, high gas prices, um, it really helps bring financial stability to my, ho to my household. Um, it also helps alleviate some of the stress that I have in my life as a student um, and student fees are very, very high. Um, also having a growing child and teenager, um, food can get very costly, especially if you want to feed your family um, healthy food. Also, um, it's been a blessing to be a little bit less stress-free and having my children see me stress-free is a blessing. So I, I really hope this child tax credit continues. Right, and we want to thank the Care Income Now uh, campaign um, who organized uh, to get that uh, clip from Irene. Uh, Laura Carlson, we're going to start with you because on the one hand, you have this uh, lofty debate um, with the Wall Street Journal editors about Reaganomics versus um, what they call socialism in terms of what President Biden is putting out. And on the other hand, you have a mom talking about the reality of really what's behind this row that's happening on Capitol Hill. Laura Carlson. Margaret, I listened to the first clip with a growing sense of outrage. You know, to hear the Wall Street Journal citing Reaganomics and talking about curing extravagance in an economy that now is so weighted toward the most obscene luxury expenses based on the concentration of wealth that we now have on the in the United States, that to even mention extravagance as a defense of that concentration is just completely outrageous. And then we heard uh, Joe Biden talking about this other direction and uh, got back into the, the, the whole notion of trickle-down. And trickle-down is a correct way of describing what they call, you know, the good fortune of others helping people below them or however it was they put it. There's no evidence whatsoever, not just in the United States, but also with the exportation of the neoliberal model, that trickle-down has ever worked. We know exactly what this trickle-down model does, and it flows upward and creates these kinds of concentrations and injustices that we're, saying to, that we're seeing today. So to go back to the work, save, and invest, and this implicit notion that the poor are poor because they believe, because they deserve to be, and also you have to say that the Wall Street Journal, in fact, never mentioned the poor at all, but that's the implicit idea of, of why they do exist. Uh, they'd rather not even acknowledge that they exist within the United States. So this outrage was only partially alleviated by the real-life testimony. We need more testimonies like that, but we also need a lot more fact-based analysis. 
the big bone of contention in what's going on today in the negotiations of the social safety net, or whatever you want to call it, part of the package, is, as you mentioned, the family credit, the child tax credit, which it should not be. Uh, they're arguing about how long to extend it, whether it's 2024 or beyond. They're arguing about the, the points that you mentioned, mandated work programs. And yet, where is the research that will show us, and I'm convinced it will, the, of the long-term economic and social benefits of this, not just um, you know, it, and not just the economic and social benefits, but also what it contributes in terms of the human development, of particularly women who are in charge of, uh, who are the primary caregivers in most cases, and the investment in children. So unless we start getting into policy making where those things matter, these debates are going to continue and they're going to be virtually empty. We now have this extremely complicated situation that you've described. We knew it was going to be complicated. We've talked about it before. Um, there's, there's so many contradictions within it. There's the limitations of the reconciliation process. Everybody looking for a number of what's supposed to be the top. The hypocrisy you mentioned of Republicans blocking, lifting a debt ceiling when they did exactly the opposite, <coughs> excuse me, when Donald Trump was president. I mean, for many, in many ways, that whole issue has, uh, has in the, at least in the U.S. public, you know, been removed from the Republican Party because they no longer have any moral authority on it. But in the end, it's just so time to get beyond this and see what we have and start a new phase of pressuring and building. It's not easy to see how. Everybody will blame each other if it doesn't work. And what's, I guess, from the outside, really disgusting to see is that these two individuals, Joe Manson of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema, who are often cited, and there's more involved that could be obstacles as well, but they're essentially holding the U.S. public hostage in this process of delivering urgent funds from taxpayer dollars that the public contributes to desperately needed uh, programs. So this egotistical way of wielding power ceded to them in a representative system to become obstructionist is a huge source of frustration. We have to figure out a way around it. Thank you, Laura Carlson. And, and Jackie Goldberg, I mean, clearly people uh, need help. Looking on the political end of it, uh, Democrats, maybe they are starting to panic. I mean, uh, CNN is reporting that President Biden's approval rating stood at 52% in their recent poll, 69% uh, saying that things are going uh, badly in the country, 62% said that economic conditions in the U.S. are poor. That is up from uh, 45%. And then there are the, the midterm elections, and there are some uh, Senate seats um, that uh, about 10 or so, um, well, Grassley just announced that a Republican that he is not going to uh, run again. Uh, but you, um, Democrat Raphael Warnock out of Georgia, I mean, he's uh, vulnerable in Arizona. Demo 
Democrat Mark Kelly is uh, vulnerable. Also, Maggie Hassan out of New Hampshire, uh, vulnerable. Uh, Nevada, um, Catherine Cortez Masto. So, uh, Jackie Goldberg, a lot at stake here because if this doesn't get through and uh, Biden has seemed to fail in getting his agenda through, certainly Democrats are in a lot of trouble. Jackie well, Goldberg. Well, and they know it. And they know it. See, that's the point. Uh, there's a deal here, and there will be a deal. I don't care what anybody says. I've been in a legislative body with the very harshest difficulties. There's a deal there, and there will be a deal. Uh, and not everybody will get what they want, and it will be a smaller than $3.5 trillion. It may go down as low as 2 or $2.5 trillion. Uh, you know, but there will be a deal, and it will cover a lot of the things that we're talking about in terms of the social economy. I think the biggest problems are not about what goes into the program, but how to pay for it, and they will fight about that. Uh, there are uh, Democrats who are opposing giving more money to IRS uh, to make sure that the people who have been cheating for years and years and years because they know the chances of them being caught are practically zero – uh, will now get caught, and they'll pay their fair share. And that's one of the things that some of the uh, blue dogs are saying, oh, no, we don't want to really make the people pay their fair share. I mean, really, that would be kind of awful, wouldn't it? So, you know, we, we do have problems, but there will be a deal. I, I, I don't think that the, the, the panic is in the news media, not in, not in Washington. And the reason I say that is because I know that the Democrats have zero chance of retaining the House or the Senate if they don't pass these bills. Not little chance, zero chance. So they know that their chance to be in power is dependent upon them coming to a deal. They will come to a deal. And nobody will like it. Absolutely nobody will like it. But it will be a deal that will do a great deal of good for an awful lot of people in this country. And it will begin us on a different path. It's going to happen. I believe that. What the bigger problem is, and that nobody really wants to talk about, is the debt ceiling. Because, you know, as worrying as a government shutdown is, a failure to address the debt ceiling is like a disaster. It means you can't pay your bills. And that's just an unbelievable uh, situation. And it would be a disaster for the economy and for tens of millions of Americans. So... I, I think that uh, at some point or another, all this will be resolved. I think that we will have a shutdown. I think the Republicans are thrilled and excited, and they love them. Uh, I believe, however, that most people in America will blame them for the shutdown because of their refusal uh, to vote for uh, either a budget or a debt ceiling. I think the Democrats will uh, perhaps make a few efforts to get a few Republicans on the debt ceiling by making a few changes. See, what happens in the debt ceiling fights are generally the party in power puts some things in it uh, that uh, upsets the other party, but because you have to raise the debt ceiling, they get to make a few little changes that they like. Well, that's, that's the problem, and that, some of that will disappear to get some Republicans if necessary. But the debt ceiling is, is a catastrophic economic issue. Uh, it's not like uh, just having a shutdown, which is bad enough. Uh, so I think, I, think uh, I am optimistic about a deal. Uh, I am not optimistic about avoiding a shutdown. And I'm really not even optimistic about the fact that the Republicans will block raising the debt ceiling. I, 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 I don't understand their strategy. I know they think that by blocking everything that the Democrats do, they can say Biden was ineffective, put us back in power. 
but they will, it will be at their hands that he was ineffective, and I don't think that's necessarily a, a strong place to run from. So those okay. are my thoughts. I also just want to remind everybody who's so worried about this that the Republicans under Trump voted in a, in a reconciliation bill, the largest tax cuts in American history, that gave uh, a, an additional $2.3 trillion to the debt of the United States, that gave S-corporations and partnerships and individuals of high income a $1.125 trillion benefit in tax cuts, and which gave corporations $320 billion in permanent tax cuts. The other tax cuts on the IRS, it disappears, and they go back up, but they do not go back up for corporations. That $320 billion in benefits for corporations in the Trump plan passed by reconciliation by people who say, oh, God, you're spending too much money. Where was the extravagance editorial from the Wall Street Journal when they passed that tax cut and increased the, uh, the deficit by $2.3 trillion? Right. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg. And, and Dr. Horn, looking at the clock here, um, Will, you may want to comment uh, briefly on the fight going on in Washington, D.C., but also lead us into the on the international front, uh, what uh, came out of the U.N. General Assembly, any thoughts you might have on the CELAC conference that took place in Mexico. We also do want uh, Laura Carlson uh, to have a minute or so to talk about CELAC as well. Dr. Horn. Well, with regard to the first point, I agree with Senator Bernie Sanders, who said on CNN a few days ago that we understandably and justifiably talk about Senators Manchin and Sinema in the Democratic caucus. But what about the Republicans? They're not casting any votes for this $3.5 trillion social welfare measure, even though their working class and middle class constituency will benefit from it. And I think we really need to explore why that's the case. My own opinion is that the Republican base, the Trump voters, 75 million strong, are taking short-term pain, not having social welfare measures for long-term gain. That is to say, turning back the clock to an era when whiteness meant more than it does today. And that, it seems to me, portends an apartheid society. Now, with regard to this international question, the CELAC conference was very important, not only because Caribbean and Latin American nations meeting in Mexico City were plotting a course that could lead to a bloc not unlike the European Union and excluding the United States of America, whereas President Xi Jinping made a virtual uh, presentation at that particular meeting, which was very important. The Cuban leadership was well represented. It was an add-on to the African Union Caribbean Community Summit that took place virtually, uh, which had a similar outlook and which was similarly important. I think the outcome of the General Assembly meeting is quite simple, that the international community, and that includes so-called allies like France and Germany, do not necessarily see Trumpism as a passing phenomenon. When they look at Biden's foreign policy, they see more than an echo of Trump. I don't think it's necessarily due to Biden's personality or personal predilections. I think it has to do with the nature of the electorate and the fact that despite trying to execute a coup on January 6th and perhaps leading the world to nuclear war to keep his presidency, speaking of Donald J. Trump, per the Woodward Coast of Volume Peril, it appears 
according to many in the international community, that Trump will make a comeback in November 2024. And so, therefore, uh, I think that many in the international community are unwilling to make deals with Biden. Recall that the Iranians made a deal with Obama concerning the nuclear program that Trump jumped. And they think that the same can happen with a Trump regime following a, a Biden. I think one of the most interesting news bits that came out of this week was on the Wall Street Journal, interestingly enough, in the front page yesterday, where it reported that in late January of this year, early February of this year, uh, Chancellor Merkel of Germany refused a phone call from Biden. And this is all before the French submarine flap and the contested withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think it's a reflection of this cooling of many European nations towards the United States because, once again, they don't see Trumpism as a passing phenomenon, and they don't want to be caught in the middle of a shooting war between China and the United States. Wow, very interesting analysis there. And, and Laura Carlson, you'll have uh, the final word. We only, unfortunately, have about a minute and a half, Laura Carlson. The meeting of the community of Latin America and Caribbean states in Mexico was a huge step forward. Basically, what they did is revive um, an, an organization that was created specifically excluding the United States and Canada to create a counterweight and an independent space for resolving regional issues and a counterweight to U.S. hegemony in the region. So this is, this is very important for the countries involved. There's a huge amount of division. There's right-wing and left-wing governments within this space. There are uh, divisions on many, many, many different issues. But when you look at, for example, a situation like Haiti, and Haiti is one of the points specifically mentioned, the support and solidarity for Haiti in the declaration of CELAC at the end of the conference, what you see very clearly is that within the region, United States, or basically its lackey, the Organization of American States under Luis Almagro, are never going to be able to resolve the collapse and the human crisis in Haiti because they caused it, essentially. No? And so if you have a, a regional diplomatic space that's independent of that, it's going to be able to, and it has in the past when it was more active, it's going to have the potential of resolving in a new way without the dictate of the capitalist and hegemonic interests of the United States resolving and proposing concrete solutions to a number of problems. One of these was specifically what they call self-sufficiency in health. That was presented by the Economic Commission in very precise details as a way forward for this particular grouping of Latin American countries who've been so severely disadvantaged along with the entire global south when it comes to the distribution of vaccines and the ability to protect themselves from the virus. That's just right. one example of, what's, of what can be done. Okay, uh, thank you for that, Laura Carlson. Another, uh, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We are out of time. We quickly have to uh, get out of here today, but another fascinating roundtable. Uh, uh, audio engineer today, Kiana Williams, our sister producer, Romero Funes. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. Y'all, please stay safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. <laughs>